there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so thrilled that you press play. If you like music, I mean really like music, so much so you want to build a career in music, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has done just that. In fact, He's not just working in music at the world-renowned Lincoln Center in New York City, but he's also a musical theater composer who has written musicals that have actually been performed on many stages around the country. But before I introduce you to Daniel Israel, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that brings you an exclusive window every Monday into what episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number 4coffee.org to sign up. It couldn't be easier. And while you're there, please scroll down on the homepage and you'll see all the other amazing professionals we've had on the show. And they're actually organized by career. So hopefully you can find exactly what you're interested in. And if not, then please hit me up on email at Andrea at time the number 4coffee.org and let me know which profession you'd like me to feature and I will do my very best to find a dynamic professional to interview. Now, my wonderful Java junkies, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And today, my guest is Daniel Israel, who currently serves as the assistant director of touring at Jazz at Lincoln Center, where he works extensively with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and Witten Marsalis, the international nationally acclaimed musician, the trumpet player, the composer, and the band leader. At Jazz at Lincoln Center, Dan is largely responsible for booking all the JLCO tours domestically and around the world. In fact, during the five years he's been there, Dan has negotiated performances for the ensemble in over 25 countries on six continents. Prior to his appointment at Jazz at Lincoln Center, Dan was an agent and founding member of AMI, an international boutique jazz agency based in New York City. Dan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am ready to go and somewhat caffeinated. Okay, you know what? That's better than being (laughs) over-caffeinated, and I appreciate the honest response. No problem. So, Dan, it is so great to have you. I am fascinated to know that you are the assistant director of touring at Jazz at Lincoln Center. What do you do in your job? That is a great question. Let me first take a step back and just say what the mission of Jazz at Lincoln Center is, because I think that'll help contextualize what I do a little better. Absolutely. Um, The mission of Jazz at Lincoln Center is to entertain, enrich, and expand a global community for jazz through performance, education, and advocacy. So my role as assistant director of touring is mostly working with our big band, the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis. And we plan our tours. We take the band out of New York and put them on tour all over the U.S. and around the world. So that is 
mostly how I spend my time here, exporting our band and went in to places elsewhere. So how many days a year out of 365 is the band on tour? We are on tour, I'd say around 90 to 100 days out of each year. And within those 90 to 100 days, there are between 70 and 80 performances on the road. And that is in addition to our 25 to 30 concerts here in New York City at Jazz at Lincoln Center at our home. Got it. So what is involved, Dan, in booking a tour? I'm guessing there are a lot of moving pieces. There are a lot of moving pieces. And it's so funny, unless you're sort of in the music industry, if you're a concert goer, you don't think about all the things that have to happen to that go into creating a performance. A concert that you may see was planned maybe a year ago or 16 months ago. So my job is basically to set up these tours to figure out where where in the world do we want to go. Maybe we want to do a U.S. tour where we're going to focus on bringing the band to the Midwest. So we'll first carve out a couple of weeks on our calendar, which is very, very complicated. And then I'll start reaching out to presenters. And when I say presenters, I'm referring to the concert halls, the performing arts centers, the festivals, any place that will be presenting our band for you to see. Those are what what I call presenters. So I reach out to the presenters and ask them if they're interested in bringing our band into whatever city. And they may be interested, but maybe they don't have the performance hall available for that date. Or they're interested, but they don't have the kind of budget that we need to make it work. So there's all sorts of questions and back and forth that go into just planning a single date. And things need to be very well routed. By that, I mean, so since Winton doesn't like to fly, we have to make sure, especially that our tours are really well routed. And by routing, I mean, everything has to make geographical sense. In other words, we wouldn't have a performance in LA and then the next day in New York and then the next day in Chicago and then the next day in Boston, literally crisscrossing the country. We need to make sure that we make geographical sense of it. So we'd have a performance in Chicago and then maybe South Bend, Indiana, and then Carmel, Indiana, and working our way down to St. Louis, you know, logical places that requires a few hours worth of driving along the way. So there are a lot of variables into planning where we should go on tour. And then, of course, it depends on the theaters or the performance hall's availability and interest in presenting us. And then comes a negotiation where we're going back and forth with the presenter, looking at the budget, looking at our needs. We travel with 25 people, 15 of whom are musicians. So we ask that the presenter takes care of 25 hotel rooms for us, for example, and that they provide us with dinner before the concert. So these are examples of some of the details that we need to discuss as we negotiate our deal. Absolutely. And as you were laying out all the moving pieces here, Dan, I was wondering, would you consider yourself to be a very organized person? And do you think that's an essential skill in order to do this job well? Well, I think I could always be more organized. (laughs) But yes, it is critical to be organized when you're approaching this. You need to be able to keep track of your conversations. At at any given time, I'm in the middle of between 50 and 100 deals at once. So you need to be organized on paper and in your emails, but also in your mind. It's important to listen carefully in every conversation and take good notes so that we don't have to backtrack and there's just no time. We have to always keep things moving forward. 
and being organized certainly helps that. So Dan, I would also imagine if you're juggling between 50 and 100 bookings at any time that you're using something like an Excel spreadsheet or maybe another program to try to keep track of all of this? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I, I have a lot of different Excel spreadsheets. I have Google Maps and actually old-fashioned printed maps that I got from AAA all over my desk. Spreadsheets, AAA, I have the spreadsheet of our entire tour history, emails. There's, there's a lot of documents that help track everything, but spreadsheets for me are the best way. I also use calendars a lot. So between spreadsheets and calendars at any given time, I have about, you know, eight to 10 of them open on my computer at the same time. Oh my gosh. So take us into a typical day on the job as the assistant director of touring for Jazz at Lincoln Center, Dan. I know some of the time you're out on the road and then like now for this interview, you're back in New York City in your office. Correct. I'll first take you through a typical day of me being here in in the office in New York. I'll get into the office anywhere between 9 and 10 a.m. Always better to get here a little earlier before other people come into the office because it's a little quieter and I can get some more work done. If I'm working on a tour that's taking place overseas, for example, in Europe, there are six hours ahead of us here in New York. So the European emails start coming in around anywhere between like 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. So by the time I get into the office, there's a little pile of some international emails. If I want to try to speak to any of them on the phone, I have a very limited window before they leave their office. So I try to do any European calls by 10 or 11 a.m., which is 4 or 5 p.m. their time. So I'm trying to get out a few quick emails before internal emails from my other colleagues at Jazz and Lincoln Center starts coming in. I'll try to schedule these phone calls in advance just because I need to make sure that people are going to be available and at their desk to speak for 15 minutes. So just the past few days, I was on the phone with colleagues in Amsterdam and in Brussels and in Aalborg, Denmark, just trying to confirm some deals, make sure that things are on track and that I feel confident that those two days of a tour will indeed take place the way that I had mapped them out. After that, I may have an internal meeting with some of my colleagues. For example, yesterday, we had a meeting with our development department. Uh, Our development department is mostly responsible for fundraising for the entire organization. And I wanted to make sure that our development department knew what kind of tours were coming up for the 1920 season, which is next season. So I ran down the list of our different tours. Most of them are pretty solid, but some are still tentative and in the works. So I shared with them all of our tours that are going to be happening. And they offered some feedback about oh, we know someone in this city or someone in that city would be great to connect. There may be some fundraising opportunities there. So a good portion of my job is communicating to my colleagues here at Jazz and Lincoln Center as to what our tour plans are, because everything that we do on the road also relates to what we do here in New York. So maybe there's one or two internal meetings that go on during the day. If we're currently out on tour, like right now, for example, we just got back from tour on Sunday. Last week, while I was still working on booking gigs for next year, there were some issues that were going on while we were currently out on tour. 
So I was responding to those questions, getting on the phone if needed. No heavy lifting, but some basic maintenance, checking in with people to make sure everything is going smoothly on tour, to make sure our ticket sales were looking strong, to make sure the presenters, the people who I interact with the most, were happy and and pleased with the product that they were getting, Um, and just checking in with them. For me, creating these long-term relationships are really valuable. So I like to check in with people and make sure everything is, is running smoothly. So maybe that'll take me to like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And then I'll try to do some more emails and phone calls. Somehow the days seem to fly by every single day. There is no shortage of work to do, especially because I can always be looking out for the next tours. I'm also spending a lot of time reviewing contracts and creating contracts with our legal department. I spend a lot of time connecting our presenters to my colleagues in marketing. And we're talking about what the repertoire we might be performing at these shows are, and then helping our marketing team to create some copy so that our presenters can describe the show to their patrons as they sell the shows. So there's a lot of lot of moving parts that are going on at any one given time. I'm thinking about what it must be like for the international travel, especially Dan. And when you're traveling with an orchestra that has all kinds of instruments from the relatively small kind of hand luggage size (laughs) to the cello, I may be missing. And of course, some of the other instruments that may not fit in the overhead luggage that you would have to be contending with excess luggage. And of course, with the risk then when you're transferring planes that something could get lost, what are, how are you dealing with all of this? Well, for that reason, we don't travel with any of our instruments. We ship them ahead of time. They travel separately via any commercial airline, but they travel as a 3,000 pound package, essentially. So all of our instruments that we're playing, they're They are put in these big cases, and those cases travel with us wherever we go. When we perform in the U.S., we have an equipment truck. It's like a 15-foot box truck that you can rent from U-Haul, Penske, anything like that. And we have two truck drivers, and they drive all of our instruments across the country. When we travel overseas, those same 25 enormous cases filled with instruments and reeds and music and wardrobe, they get flown overseas and they meet us at our first destination wherever we are. And then once we're there, then they travel by truck on the ground. And this avoids any issue that you just spelled out of trying to cram something into an airplane or anything like that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Dan, what is it about jazz that is something worth preserving, that is something that is culturally enriching, and that you believe, clearly, as somebody who spent five years at Lincoln Center, but then before that, you were also a founding member of an international boutique jazz agency that you have dedicated a huge chunk of your professional life to. For me, when I listen to jazz music, it makes me feel good. And it's hard for me to put my finger on why. There's a lot of spontaneity involved in the music. There's a lot of rhythms that make you just, they make you move. They make you feel like, yeah, I'm into this. It's a music that when you're playing it or when you're listening to it, it requires listening. 
and reacting, you know, the improvisatory nature of jazz, it's, it's a conversation. So to be an audience member listening to this conversation, listening to the dialogue between the, the trumpet and the trombone and the saxophone, whatever that the specific piece calls for, I find that incredible. Some of the, and they're great, great composers that, you know, should be as household names as Beethoven and Bach. And they're not yet. And I think in, in part because compared to classical music, jazz is still somewhat young. But, you know, just just getting to know the music of Duke Ellington or Thelonious Monk, for me, it's hard not to like it. I don't understand how anyone could not like it. And I know there are people who don't love jazz, and that's okay. But I think it's it's worth listening to if you if you don't currently listen to it. And, you know, it's, it's been the, the reason why our organization exists, to, to spread this music, to make people more aware of it, and to expose people to these incredible artists and compositions. Yeah. And isn't it uniquely American? Yes. Yeah, it is uniquely American. But there are all other places around the world that have their own version, too. And that's one of the fantastic treats about getting to bring our music around the world is because we also learn about that particular culture's version of jazz. So wherever we go, we try to pick up some new musical tidbits, some new rhythms, work with local or regional musicians who bring a different aspect of playing and a different perspective to the table. What are these performances like for those who have had the opportunity to sit in the audience, a jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra performance? And in particular, Dan, what is it like to work with a national treasure like Wynton Marsalis? Well, I'll first talk about it from the perspective of an audience member. Winton is not front and center. He's not directing the band. Winton sits in the back row as one of the four trumpeters. But as an audience member, you see five, five people in the first row. They're playing mostly saxophones, but also clarinets and flutes and piccolos, depending on what the pieces call for. Behind them, there are three trombonists. Behind them, there are four trumpets. One of them is Winton Marsalis. And then we have our rhythm section, a pianist, an upright bassist, and a drummer. So our, our band is 15, 15 musicians. And Winton will be on the microphone for the concert, introducing each piece. He feels it's important to educate the audience. It's not just a performance, but he wants to tell you about the composer. He wants to tell you about the context in which the piece was written in. So he, he takes the audience on this musical journey, even though he's not up in front of the band soloing on most tunes. And from observing many, many audiences in many cities and countries for the last few years, even if people don't speak English, you know, they're able to follow this musical story and you know, laugh at the history and the, and the culture that Winton presents to them. To answer your other question, for me, it's an I feel so lucky to get to work with Wynton Marsalis. You referred to him as a national treasure, and he absolutely is. He is, aside from being an incredible trumpet player and music director, you know, he is the managing and artistic director and founder of Jazz at Lincoln Center. You know, this has been his life. So to work with someone like him who is so dedicated and devoted, I mean, he spends not 24 hours a day because he does get a little sleep, but he spends every waking hour on keeping this art form alive. Every once in a while, I'll drive him 
to different cities around the U.S. And I'm not his main driver, but <laughs> it's always a treat driving him because he'll launch into all these stories. Sometimes I get lost because his level of thinking is so far beyond mine. But he is one of the smartest, probably the smartest and most passionate and articulate and deep thinking people that I'll ever meet. And I feel really, really, really lucky to get to work with him and to just be part of this world that he has helped to create. How did you get your start in this profession, Dan? When did you know that you wanted to pursue music as a serious profession? As a whole, I think I knew I wanted to pursue a career in music or at least in the entertainment industry when I was starting college. I almost went to uh, chose a path of going to a music conservatory to pursue classical saxophone. And I decided at 18 years old that that was too young to narrow my option in what I felt would have been a limiting way. So from the beginning, I wanted to keep my options open. But I, I just love music. Music has been such an important part of my life, an integral part of my life for such a long time that I guess I couldn't imagine my life without music. So because of that, I always felt, boy, if I can make a career involving music, you know, that would be a, a, great, a great scenario to find myself in. So you went to the University of Rochester, you got your BA in music, and you mentioned that you were a classical saxophonist. Did you have any idea when you graduated, Dan, what you were going to do? I had a few ideas. I did I did a fifth year at the University of Rochester. It was a the first year of a new program that they launched called the Kaufman Entrepreneurial Year. And it was a, a, a year, a fifth year tuition free, which was great. And as part of that year, I got to explore more of the arts administration, music business side of things. So for that fifth year, I actually worked two jobs professionally in theater as a production assistant and a music assistant. I just spent a good chunk of my senior year writing and producing an original musical on campus. Wow. So I was sort of running these parallel paths of trying to pursue a career in, in theater and then also discovering that it might be possible to make a living as an agent. And the concept of an agent to me was extremely foreign. As, as a, one of the leaders and members of our college acapella group, I booked a lot of our performances and tours around the country for four years. I'd never thought of myself as an agent. I thought of myself as fulfilling my job to get our group gigs and pay the bills and put us out on tour. And it never, ever crossed my mind that I could be booking a performance for someone else. <laughs> my senior year, I helped produce on campus sort of like a day-long residency for Aaron Goldberg. Aaron Goldberg is one of my favorite jazz pianists, and I've known him since I was in high school. Aaron, Aaron used to play with Joshua Redman. Joshua Redman's a saxophonist who I loved growing up throughout middle school and, and high school. He was the first jazz musician who I really listened to and followed a lot. So I had an opportunity to bring Aaron Goldberg and his trio to the University of Rochester for this collaborative day involving a workshop and masterclass at the Eastman School of Music, which is not that uncommon when you're bringing in a musician to present. You also want them to work with music students. I also arranged some non-music activities for Aaron's trio. I was a member of a fraternity at school, and we have a pretty rich academic 
program. And we bring in guest speakers to speak to the fraternity brothers and to the campus at large as well. So I pitched to my friends who are running the program, wouldn't it be great if the three musicians sat around a big table and we all talked about what is jazz, talked about improvisation without playing a single note, basically humanizing and demystifying the myth of jazz as being complicated and unaccessible. So what unfolded over that hour was this incredible conversation about jazz and improvisation with a bunch of non-music students, which was absolutely the goal of the whole program. After that conversation, we then invited everyone to attend the concert in the evening. And as a result of that conversation, 30, 40 people went to the concert who ordinarily wouldn't have gone, and they experienced jazz for the first time. That, to me, was a a really great moment and showed me that you can sort of produce a musical event from behind the scenes and, and create so much value to everyone involved. Anyway, at the end of the night, I was talking with Aaron. He was so happy about the day, and he thanked me profusely, and then he tried to give me some money. So thank you, Dan. I said, I, I can't take this money. No, this is your commission. I, I can't take a commission. This is money that you know we raised from four different departments at the university. Like this is your money. I said, well, I'm paying you. This is your commission, as if you were my agent. And that was the moment, my senior year of college, that I realized that you can be an agent and represent someone other than my own acapella group and make money doing it. Oh my gosh. You know, as I listen to you talk, <laughs> Dan, I'm thinking, little did you know, your senior year in college and then that fifth year that you did was foreshadowing the career that you would go into. Absolutely. <laughs> Pretty funny. So how did you get your first job after you finished your fifth year in college at the University of Rochester? I moved to New York in September of 2006 to audition for the BMI Musical Theater Writing Workshop. There was an application process over the summer, and then there was a live in-person audition, I think the first week of September. Took the audition, got accepted into the program, and I started attending that weekly musical theater class. And that was the event that put me permanently in New York City. Then I had to find a job. (laughs) (laughs) So for the next two months, I started reaching out to really anything in the music and and theater world. And I called up Aaron Goldberg and he said, Dan, you should really reach out to my agent. Maybe he can talk to you about the jazz world and offer you some advice or some suggestions. So I did just that. I reached out to the representative who worked with Aaron and took a meeting with him. And the day later, Joel Chris was his name. The day later, Joel said that he thinks he may be able to create an opportunity for me. And a month after that, and towards the end of October, I started working at my first job in the jazz industry at Joel's company. And that was that. I have not left the jazz industry since then. One point of clarification, Dan. Yes. What is the BMI Musical Theater Writing Workshop? The BMI Musical Theater Writing Workshop is a free program in New York sponsored by BMI geared towards writers, composers, and lyricists of musical theater. It's a free program, and it's basically a laboratory for 
developing new musical theater pieces. You're in the class your first year with 15 other composers and 15 lyricists. And throughout the course of the first year, they give you specific assignments. Write a comedy song about this type of moment. Write a dramatic song about that type of moment. I think in December of that first year, there was an assignment where we each had to take a scene from the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And they paired us up with a different lyricist and you had to create a musical version of that scene. So the first year of the BMI program, you're basically getting to know other lyricists and composers in your class, writing pieces, getting critiqued by your colleagues and by the moderators of the class. In the second year of BMI, you have to choose a collaborator in class and write 20 minutes of a new musical. And there are benchmarks along the way. So you're bringing in certain pieces throughout the year and getting feedback, getting critique, getting, it, it's never insulting comments, but you know, you have to have a pretty thick skin in order to take other people's comments about your work. So that's the first two years. And after that, if they like your work, they will invite you back to the advanced class. And I've been in the advanced class now for 10 years. And it's a laboratory for experimenting with your new musical theater compositions. So my writing partners and I will bring in new songs from projects we're working on, and we'll see what the reaction is. We'll see if the jokes are landing. We'll see if people are confused. We'll see if people are reacting the way we want them to react. And a number of musicals over the past 15, 20, 25 years have been developed in BMI, A Chorus Line, Avenue Q, just to name a few. So it's an incredible opportunity to work with other musical theater writers and to get feedback from incredible moderators and really well-known players in the musical theater world. Oh, fantastic. So for those listeners who think they would like to apply, do you happen to remember off the top of your head, Dan, by when you have to send in your application and how old you need to be and and all of the details there? If you Google or whatever search engine you prefer, (laughs) if you look up BMI Musical Theater Writing Workshop, you can get all the specific details there. But the application is due at some point in the summer. I think it's actually July or August, but I, I can't remember for sure. And they'll ask you to submit I think three or four songs that you've written as a composer and or lyricist. So one could be a comedy song, one could be a ballad, one could be an up-tempo. And if they like the work that they see or hear in your application, then they'll invite you in for an in-person audition. So I know, as you've already alluded here, that you are a musical theater composer. Could you talk about any of the musicals that you've written? What was involved in doing that? Are you also a lyricist or is that the role of the partners that you've also (laughs) talked about? I used to be a lyricist and I could still write a few lyrics, but there are so many people who do it way better than me. I would rather work with people who can do it better than me and not deal with lyrics at all. Um, (laughs) It's just better for the piece. So yeah, I do work with a a few different writing partners. One of my writing partners and close friend, Barry Weiner, he and I were commissioned to write a couple pieces for the George Street Playhouse. They're based in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And our show's were musical comedies geared towards young audiences. The first musical was is called Austin the Unstoppable. It's a musical that focuses on the issues of health and wellness, childhood obesity, 
type 2 diabetes. And it's a very, very sensitive topic. So it's important to sort of lay out the issues within the musical very carefully. You can never be preachy in a musical geared towards kids because the moment that you start preaching to them and telling them what you can and can't do is the moment that they tune out and stop listening. But this is a musical comedy too. So we're trying to balance the, the issue of making this a funny topic and one that's also serious. But this is a musical that's been running for seven years, performs mostly in the state of New Jersey, but they do over 60 performances a year, bringing the show into schools. So it's a really rewarding piece to have written. And as part of the development process from the very beginning, it was, it was, a, it was a great, great opportunity. That sounds incredible. I'm curious because this is very much outside my lane of expertise. What comes first? The musical composition or the lyrics, or does it matter? Well, in terms of the actual song, it doesn't necessarily matter. But before the song even comes into play, first we have to know what kind of story we're telling. And in the musical theater world, we call that the book. So as a whole, it's good to have a sense of the book and sort of a story outline. What's going to happen? Do we want a song at this moment that projects this type of feeling. Once we choose the moment that a song should fit into, then we can sort of figure out what type of song. Is this going to be an up-tempo? Is this going to be a, a comedy song? Then we will figure out, okay, this, is, this needs to be this style song. Dan, why don't you come up with a melody first? And I can create some lyrics to go with that. Or maybe my writing partner will have a great lyrical idea first and he'll present, he or she will present the lyrics to me and I'll come up with a melody for that. Or maybe we'll sit down together and come up with a hook together. And the hook is sort of like the, the title of the song, if you will. It's a, a reoccur reoccurring phrase that you hear repeatedly in the song. So maybe we'll come up with a hook together and then the melody will sort of spin out from the hook and the rest of the lyrics will follow as well. And when you are composing, Dan, I would mm -hmm. have to imagine that you're playing an instrument as you do this. Is it usually the piano or how do you test out the sound? Great question. Yes, I mostly compose at the piano, although because I feel that my piano skills are somewhat limited, I think it's better when I try to push myself and compose melodies, at least, away from the piano. That way I'm not restricting myself to my ability to play piano, but rather encouraging my mind to explore different melodies and, and options without making my fingers do the work or without letting my fingers slip into some of the old patterns that I find would routinely happen if I did that. But yes, it, it is very comforting for me to be at the piano while I'm composing. So what is the other instrument or what are the other instruments that you would be using while you're testing out different melodies? I'm only using piano and voice, basically, when we're writing musicals. It's at a very, very later point in the process that anything would be orchestrated. And by that, I mean turning the piano score into a score that could be played by other instruments. Orchestration is one of the, the last stages as you get closer to the final production of a musical. Gotcha. So most of my writing is all just piano and vocal. So how do you balance your musical theater composing with your day job? Balancing life as a musical theater composer and someone in the industry has been a challenge. And that has been a challenge from day one. It is one of the reasons why I initially chose to pursue 
a career as a, an agent, especially at the first couple companies I was working at, because it did give me some flexibility. Being an agent is very end result driven. Did you book the gigs? Are your artists who you represent happy? It doesn't necessarily all have to be done nine to five. So it was a challenge, especially a few years ago when I was writing more frequently than I am now. I would disappear from my office for a few hours at a time to rehearse a new piece with actors. Or if it was a week that we were preparing for an industry reading of a piece where we had 30 hours worth of rehearsal in a week, it was definitely a challenge to basically try to live in both worlds at the same time. Even now at Jazz and Lincoln Center, for me to keep an active writing schedule just means that I have to stay up really, really late at night. Or maybe I duck into Winton's dressing room because he lets me use his piano sometimes. That's great. But it is, it is a challenge. And I witness this when I'm on tour with the band all the time because our members of our band, they're composing as well. And they find ways to utilize every hour that we're on the bus ride to compose or to write emails or to keep their own careers alive and thriving. So... I've had to find ways to do that. And it's not always easy, but it's allowed me to stay involved in, in both things at the same time. So Dan, I always try to ask my Time for Coffee guests a couple of questions. Sure. And one of them is if they would share a time during their professional life when they struggled. Those of us who are older have had many, many times when we struggled. Would you share a story with the Time for Coffee community about a difficult time for you professionally? And most importantly, how you managed to persevere and maybe a lesson that you learned in the mm -hmm. process? I should start by saying I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate throughout my, my career. And, and this goes back to the first day that I walked onto the campus of the University of Rochester. But yes, I've had some challenges along the way. It was not easy working at a small jazz booking agency. And I worked for two of them. It was hard because there was very, very little structure. You had to create your own rules, your own hours. There wasn't much help. You had to do a lot of it yourself. And it was very empowering, but also was difficult. And as I was trying to, to balance a career writing musical theater, at many times I felt like I was pulled in too many directions at the same time. And for every hour that I spent composing, that was one less hour I had to do my job as an agent. So I did feel like at times I was letting people down. And in the end, I paid the price. That meant fewer dollars in my pocket. As an agent, you work on commission. So if I wasn't booking gigs, I wasn't earning any commissions and I was making a lot less money. So for years, for years, just working as an agent at a small jazz booking agency, I was sort of resigned to the fact that I was not making a lot of money. But I really believed in what I was doing. I believed in the musicians who I represented. And I also believed in the, the musical theater pieces I was writing too. So it was a big sacrifice and a tough pill to swallow knowing that maybe I was making a lot less money than many of my friends who chose to work in different industries. But I feel like in general, I'm an optimistic person and I find all the positives. I try to find all the positives and things and, and, and that keeps you going. And when I got a call from Jazz at Lincoln Center, right around the same time where I really knew it was time to leave my previous company, it was great timing. And I was really, really fortunate for that change. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Final time for coffee question, Dan. If you could go back to the University of Rochester and do it 
all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? What advice would I give myself? Wow. I think I would have read more books. <laughs> I have a great big pile of books from college that I must have skimmed at some point, but I feel like I never truly read them. So I do regret not doing some more reading. But I was juggling a lot of different activities at the university, and I was trying to find a way to, to keep everything on the table and do everything as best as I possibly could. But one regret that I did have is not having gone abroad. I felt that I didn't want to miss anything that was going on at the university. So because of that, I decided to not study abroad. But I, I wish I had come up with a creative solution to study abroad at some point in the summer or some time, some off time and made that work. But, you know, I, I don't really have too many regrets. I, I loved so many experiences of, of my five years at the university. Well, I actually think you're making up for that junior year abroad doing all your international <laughs> travel now, right? That is very, very true. <laughs> I mean, it's always different when you're going as an employee and as a staff member and you've got many more responsibilities, of course, than you would had you been a student. But at least you're getting to see the world, which is an amazing experience. Dan, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are clearly an incredibly talented guy. You have organizational skills I would kill for in addition to obviously your immense talent as a composer. And I hope that those listeners who think they want to build a career either as a composer or as somebody who's actually able to pay the bills <laughs> in the field of music, that they go onto the BMI Musical Theater Writing Workshop website, check it out. Maybe there's some opportunities there, but wishing you continued success in everything you do. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 